Well, it's great to be here with you this morning. I appreciate that intro, Adam. I am thinking about Cole. I remember watching the nursery. We were the same height back then, and now you've surpassed me. But uh, thank you for allowing me to be here with you. It's a privilege, and I'm grateful for your church and the hospitality you've shown. Adam said I only have an hour and a half, so I'll try to keep it short. But uh, what I want to do is just uh, go to the book of First Peter. Uh, at Four Oaks, where I'm leading our college students through the book of First Peter and Second Peter. So this has been on my mind for a while, and I figured maybe I could have some helpful thoughts for you here. So we're going to look at First Peter. I'm just going to look at a couple verses, but I want to read a larger portion just to get the context. So we'll start in First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and we'll go down to verse 10. I'm going to focus primarily on verses 9 and 10. First Peter, starting in chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's take a moment and pray before we dive into the Word. Our Father, we thank you for these words, and we pray that we would receive them, not as the words of man, but as your very divinely inspired words, and that by hearing them, our hearts would be transformed, that you would spur us on to love and good deed, and build in us a love the church that you have formed us to be. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that always fascinates me about the Apostle Peter is this is a guy who knew very early on how he was going to die. This is something that I would not want to know for myself, but at the end of John's Gospel, Jesus talks to him and he says, you're going to be essentially martyred for the faith. You're going to be taken away when you don't want to. And this Anecdote, this, these words from Jesus Christ to Peter stuck with him his entire life. And so here at the end of his life, he knows that his death is fast approaching. Peter's going to die as a martyr for the faith a few years after he pens this letter, First, first Peter and Second Peter. You have to think about what that would do to how you think about your own life if you knew about your death. And the truth is, we all know that that day is coming for all of us, and we don't know exactly when or exactly how. But there's something about that reality of your mortality that clarifies things. It crystallizes what really matters. These are effectively the last words of this great apostle. 
of the greatest leader of the early church. And when he writes these final words, you know you're going to get his best stuff. This is what I want you to know, because I'm not going to be here much longer for you. So I have endeavored to write these things down. And when Peter writes down his best stuff, when he's thinking about the church that he loves, that he's willing to die for, that he cares about, the last things he wants them to know is this. Remember who you are in Christ. You have to understand who you are in Christ. Remember the promises that He has given to you. Remember what He has done for you. That is what solidifies your identity. And we often think about the church as merely a response to the grace of God. You know, Jesus dies and rises again, and a bunch of His Christian people following are like, that was amazing. We should gather together each week, and why don't we just sing? And maybe someone will share a message, and we can pray for each other. Wouldn't that be a great response? But that's not the vision of the church the New Testament presents. The church, according to the New Testament, is not just a response to the grace of God. It is an act of God's very grace. Peter says the church is comprised of those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're the passive recipients of this action of God. God, by his word, calls us out of sin, not just to himself, but to one another. The Greek word for the church is ekklesia. There's a prefix, ek, which means to call out of. And ekklesia, it's from the verb kaleo, which means to call. To call. God calls us. He is the divine initiator. He calls us to be His church. So the church is not a country club of people sharing the same religious interests. And we all have the same hobby and we come together. The church is a divinely initiated gathering a powerful gathering of God's redeemed together. It's a living community of those who have been called to salvation. There is no institution on earth that is like it. There is no institution in which God himself, by his very word, has formed like the church. And so, when Peter wants to inform the church about what it means to be his assembly, to be the body of Christ, he doesn't confirm, he doesn't uh, 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 look at a church growth manual. He doesn't look at, you know, sort of the, the best tips in the Greco-Roman world to create an organization. The guiding light for what the church is, is the Word of God itself. And he points to the Old Testament. That's the fascinating thing. He says, if you want to know what it means to be the New Testament church, you need to read the Old Testament. The people of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there's a different form there's points of discontinuity, but there is one common thread that he links between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. That is that we are people called out into redemption to praise his glorious grace, to praise him. And so Peter draws three distinct markers from the Old Testament to teach us what that means to be his redeemed people called to praise him. That's what I want to look at this morning, just three of the markers that he gives. He calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Let's look at that first marker. The church is a chosen race. A chosen race. Interestingly, Peter quotes almost verbatim from Isaiah 43, 20-21. The prophet Isaiah writes this, The wild beasts will honor me. 
the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people or my chosen race, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. Very interesting that Peter looks at that and he says, I want you to have the mentality of who you are as God's people. You are a chosen race. And you think about the Old Testament. God brought Israel out of the darkness of slavery into the light of freedom in order that they might praise Him. That's what Moses says over and over to Pharaoh. He says, I need, you, guys, you need to release me because God has called us out of slavery to you so that we might go and be His people primarily to praise Him as the one true and living God. And Peter takes that and he says, that framework is that's, that's what you should think of as a Christian. I mean, if you were to talk to an Old Testament Jew, he's wandering around in the desert, and you ask him, what's your story? What's the story of your people? What are you guys all about? They would say, we were once lost in bondage and slavery. But God, in a powerful act, brought us out of that slavery. And he covered us with the blood of a sacrificial lamb into a place of freedom. Well, that sounds a lot like what the gospel is. That we've been brought out of slavery to sin, the condemnation of sin, and brought into the light of freedom and righteousness. And how did it happen? By the blood of a slain lamb, the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And now we're guided by the Spirit, just like the Israelites were, through the wilderness as we approach the promised land, the, the consummation of the kingdom, the new heavens and the earth that, that Jesus Christ promises us when he returns. And so Peter says, you are in line with that story. Even though you're Gentiles, you have been brought into the story of redemption that God has been telling from the very beginning. That's why the word chosen is so important. Maybe the word chosen might send a cold Calvinist chill down your spine. But don't worry. The vast majority of the Bible's usage of chosen is actually referring to people chosen in history. Now, certainly we're chosen and elect from before time. That is true. But there's something, something deeper here. You know, Abraham was chosen out of all the nations to be the father of a nation. And God promises Abraham, through your family, you will bless all the nations of the world. And this always comes as a gift, not based on works, but on his grace. Now, what about this second word, race? Right? If the word chosen didn't freak you out a little bit, maybe, maybe race will start to get you a little nervous, right? A chosen race. Well, it's from the word genos, and it refers almost exclusively to a people group of common ancestry and culture. But what's, what's odd here is that Peter applies that to both Jews and Gentiles. You are all a chosen race. How can Gentiles who are not ethnically Jewish receive this designation as part of God's people? Well, they, they, have, to be, they have to be born again. Born again into a new lineage, not of the flesh, but by the Spirit. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, Paul is saying when you read the promise to Abraham... Inside of that promise is already the seed of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of Abraham. Not by blood, but by the new birth. 
you essentially receive a new genealogy by your faith. You are brought into the family of Abraham, and that fulfills the promise that God gave to him so many thousands of years ago, that you would be the father of a people, that all the nations would be blessed through it. So this is not something new that Peter is talking about, but the fulfillment of something very old. That in Jesus Christ, in the one new man, Jew and Gentile are brought together. I'm thinking about the, thinking about all the news with Israel and Hamas and Palestine, all these things, and I, I can't help but think about that. That's, that's an age-old conflict between Jew and Gentile, between the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael. And in Ephesians, we see the only conclusion, the only uh, uh, way that these two brothers can be reunited is through the one body of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that this hostility can cease. And so there's something powerful that God is doing in Christ to bring these two together. And that's what Peter is trying to say to this Jewish and Gentile church. He's trying to have them understand their common familial bond that they have in Jesus Christ. It doesn't erase their ethnicity or their differences, but rather binds them together by a larger and greater principle. That you are both now sons of Abraham. You think about even when you see families you know, you see uh, uh, two, two sons. One of them perhaps is adopted. And they're playing with their friends. Right? They don't have the same biological lineage. But what happens when dad says, you need to come inside? The two sons turn their head around. What marks them out as family isn't their bloodline, but their common response to their father. Right? And that's what Peter's saying. What marks you out as my people is not your bloodline, but your common response to the word of the gospel. And because of that, you have now been called to a brotherly love. That's what Peter talks about. He says earlier on in this chapter, we read this, put away all malice and envy, all these types of things. You know, Peter's so concerned. He says that that even though you're going to face all these external hostilities, don't blow up the church from the inside out. You must recognize that you are family and you must have a brotherly love, a brotherly affection. Don't, don't miss, when you read the, the epistles, the opening and closing parts of those letters. These are letters from friends to one another. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Right? We are servants of Christ for your sake. The fact that these are given to us in letters shows that there is this bond among the people within the church. A bond, a family bond. And why do they need to understand that you are a chosen race? That why, do they, why does Peter take so, such great length to show the familial bond of the church? It's because they're suffering. Because they're being persecuted. Now, sometimes when we talk about persecution, we think about, well, you know, we're not like the churches in the Middle East who are dying for their faith, or churches in Africa or any of these places who are really, really suffering and they're being beaten for their faith. And sometimes when we think today in America we have it easy and, you know, maybe people will call us names, maybe people will try to cancel us and say things, but, but we can't compare that to them. But what's fascinating in First Peter is the things that he talks about when he says persecution is this, that people malign you for not sharing in their godless ways, that people insult you for the name of Christ, that they slander you, that they speak evil of you. He's actually talking about social alienation. He's actually talking about people saying that you are backwards, that you are cast out of society, that you are people to be looked down upon. So I actually think there's a lot that we can learn. Peter is talking more about our day than perhaps we realize. So persecution isn't just limited to dying for your faith. 
But Peter is very much concerned about people's livelihood being threatened, people's, people's uh, social status being threatened because they have now turned toward Christ. And that's why he says you need to have brotherly love for one another. You need to support one another. When your brothers are maligned for not participating in sin, when they're, again, insulted for Christ's name, we must care for each other, pray for each other, encourage each other. I don't just assume that, you know, well, that person, they do their quiet times and they'll be fine. And even maybe they lost their job. Maybe they're dealing with stuff with their kids. They're worried about their kids. They're worried about the world. And, but they'll be fine. They're, they're having devotionals. Maybe they need you to pray for them. Maybe they need you to encourage them. Speak the word of God and, and say to them not to be afraid. We have to be there for one another because the days are evil. And Peter is saying, remember, you're a chosen race. You are, you are family to one another. Show that brotherly love. second thing that Peter brings up is that we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Now, this is very loaded language. When you think about the priests, you think about the Old Testament. And primarily the priests served two functions. If you think about the, the Levitical priests, they were, they were teachers of the law. And they were also, they served as those who facilitated the religious life of Old Testament Israel. And they, in a sense, they served as go-betweens between the people and God. They represented God to the people and the people before God. And Peter is saying that you are, as a church, a priesthood of believers, a royal priesthood. And this echoes from Exodus 19.6. God brings them out of slavery in Egypt and he says, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. So this general priesthood is actually an Old Testament principle. That yes, there are a separate role for those who are priests, but there's also a general priesthood that Israel had. And we can see that even in the church. There's those ordained and called to be pastors. But then there is a general priesthood of all believers. And one of the things that Israel was meant to do, and what the priests were meant to do, and Israel as a kingdom... They were meant not just to reflect the glory of God, but to refract it. I remember in high school, you know, you sit there, you're bored in English class or something like that, and you're wearing a watch, and then maybe the sun comes in from the window, and then it bounces off your watch, and it goes on another window, and you're just playing around and trying to blind your friends. Well, that's refraction. Reflection is your image is reflected back, but refraction is when light hits something and it bounces outward. And that was the call of Israel. Remember, Abraham, through your seed, you will bless all the nations of the world. God's glory will not only be reflected in you as a people, but refracted. The light of God's truth would go outwards and reflect out into the nations. But the tragedy of the Old Testament is that this priesthood, instead of reflecting or refracting the glory of God, they become corrupt. And that, that brings the curse of God, and that brings the judgment of God. And that's always pointing and saying, this Old Testament priesthood just ain't cutting it. That's, that's my summary of the book of Hebrews, right? You need a new and better priesthood, and that's where Jesus Christ comes in, the great high priest. That is our great high priest. And he perfectly reflects the glory of God and refracts it out, right? And as people who are in Christ, we are given that authorization as priesthood, as the royal priesthood of God, to be people also bringing that message out into the world, to be people who refract that glory out into the world. 
That's why Peter says you're not just a priesthood, you're a royal priesthood. You've been authorized. If you're in Christ, you've been authorized by Christ to represent Christ to the world. Right? That you go and you represent who He is and what He calls the world to accept. And so the actions of the church in the world has that prophetic function. By the Spirit, we go into the world as His priests and we tell people about Christ. But there's more than that. We also represent people before Christ in this way. You know, sometimes when you sit here and you come to church and you think about work, and you're like, oh, I'm thinking about work again. This is Jesus' time. I have to remove that. But what's interesting is, I mean, work is a vast majority of our life, right? You spend most of your time thinking about work, and work, for a lot of us, you know, that, that, that could be the vast majority of your stress and the difficulties in your life. And I think one of the most powerful things about the Reformation, you know, thinking about we're going to, think, we're going to have the, the celebration of the anniversary of the Reformation in a few days, is Martin Luther's insistence upon the priesthood of believers. And one of the things he would say was that if you're a Christian shoemaker, you, you glorify God not by making shoes with crosses etched into them, but by making excellent shoes. In other words, no matter where you go, no matter what vocation you have, whether it's a shoemaker, a lawyer, someone who works at the Capitol, a mother, a father, a teacher, whatever vocation you have, you go as a priest of God. You go as a representative of God and the excellence of your work, and the way that you go about your work. But not only that, but you can bring that work to God, that you can intercede and pray for your unbelieving co-workers. You can pray for your children who don't know the Lord. You can pray for your boss. You can pray for the people in your community. One of the great promises of the New Covenant that we see in the book of Hebrews is access. You can come before the throne of grace with great confidence, because of your great high priest. And I wonder if that's lost upon us. When you come here, you can come before the throne and you can pray for your co-workers to know Christ. You can pray for the problems you're encountering at work, the difficulties, the things that bother you. If it bothers you, you can bother God about it. But not separating out the work as if that is somehow some kind of unspiritual thing in your life. But no, you are a priest of God and you can bring that it's part of your life that matters to God. You can offer it up. And earlier we read that he says you are, you're, a, you're, you're being built up as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. You know? Again, think about what the priest did. He would cut up an animal and offer all of its members up, and it would be burnt up, and, and it, would, it would ascend the cloud of smoke up into the heavens. And what that symbolized was how the Israelites were to view their lives. Every aspect, all the members of my body, all of my body, my mind, my heart, my soul, every aspect of my life is consecrated. It's offered up to God. Right? And, and Paul, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, picks up on this. He says, I want you to think about your life as a living sacrifice. Every part of your life is offered up in worship to God. Every part of your time, your, your work, your finances, your family life, all of it is offered up to God. A means of worship for God. Think about this, especially with the family. I mean, the most powerful image of God's authority and God's love is going to come from mothers and fathers, especially from fathers. The fatherhood of God. That is not something you merely think about abstractly. It is something that is 
that is experienced and understood by children. And so fathering and mothering, it's a powerful way of demonstrating what it means to be Christ-like, what it means to live a life in line with the Word of God. So think about that. Think about that in all the avenues of life that you are called to, that you've been authorized to represent Christ in those arenas. But not only that, but you can also represent them before the Father in your prayers, in calling God to act in the world for the sake of His kingdom. He has set you apart from Christ in very purpose. And I think that if we had that confidence, that would be transformative when we think about prayer, when we think about corporate prayer at the church. What are we doing? It's not well-wishing. The powerful action of God's people coming before the throne to ask Him to act. What, what a powerful thing to think about. So He calls us your chosen race, your royal priesthood. Finally, He reminds us you are a holy nation. You're a holy nation. Peter opens his letter by referring to the church as elect exiles. Again, in the Old Testament, exile is a huge thing. I mean, sometimes we don't appreciate this, how, how dramatic and devastating the exile was for Israel. They were uh, destroyed. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he comes in and he basically takes Israel into captivity. And they're stripped from their homeland. And the, the mentality of somebody in exile is this. We are far from home. We, we don't belong here. We will make homes here, we will raise our families here, but there's a sense of longing that nothing will be complete, nothing will be at peace until you're finally home. And so when he says you're a holy nation, he's saying something that though you are absolutely citizens of a nation, and that's important, that's important, but you must never forget the ultimate citizenship that you have as members of the kingdom of heaven that there will always be a sense in which you will be strangers and exiles within the world. That even though we, again, we raise our families in a nation and we are grateful for our nation, we want to preserve the good in a nation, there's always going to be this sense of it's just never going to be home. And that longing is actually something that marks the people of God, that allows them to have their ultimate allegiance in the proper place. So there's this heavenly citizenship that he calls us to. But Peter says this is actually something that enables us to act in powerful ways within whatever nation we find ourselves. You know, he, he goes on and talks about submission. And it's amazing. He, he has this lofty theology. And you can imagine people like, oh, it's amazing. Call it out of darkness into his light, chosen race, royal priest. That's awesome. What does that mean, Peter? He says, it means honor the emperor. It means if you're a slave, you honor your master. It means if your wife and your husband doesn't obey the word, you still submit and you pray. You're like, what are you talking about? But what is he doing? He's saying this lofty theology works itself out in citizenship, in work, in marriage, in these very ordinary channels of your life. But notice in all of these spheres, God is the third party. Why can you submit to the governing authorities when he says honor the emperor? 
Because you know that there is a king who is above all kings and that he fights on your behalf. You don't have to start a revolution. God cares about his people. So he says, you actually are free to submit because you are actually free from his ultimate authority because you have an authority that's higher. He says, your master has a master himself that will hold him to account. He even has this peculiar passage where he says, you know, husbands, if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, God might not hear your prayers. Your prayers will be hindered. And what is that pointing at? He's saying to the wife, he says, the Lord is with you in your marriage. Right? You don't have to force things in your own hand. God is with you. He's the third party. And that's something powerful for the church. That God is with us. That he cares for us. He will act on our behalf. And I think yeah, the church is kind of an odd thing. You think about the things that mark the church. The, what are the two ordinances that God has given? He gives us the Lord's Supper and Baptism. You know, every nation has their sort of rituals that, that mark us out. Right? And in the nation of God, in the, in the kingdom of God, baptism and the Lord's Supper, these are the things that mark us out as the citizens of God's kingdom. But both of these things that mark us out, you can't do them by yourself. You can't baptize yourself, right? And you can't feed yourself the Lord's Supper. These marking symbols of what it means to be God's holy nation require other people. It requires a church. And so when we think about being a holy nation, you can't think about that without thinking about being part of the church. You can't just, you know, listen to a sermon podcast and go on a walk in the woods and you know have a nice prayer time. That, that, if you do that, that's fine. But that's not what, what God is calling us to. He's saying that if you're a holy nation, you are meant to be that together. You are set apart together. The church is a people bound together by the gospel. And so being a part of a church, gathering on a Sunday, is a non-negotiable. Right? It, it, it would be unthinkable. How can you be this holy nation? How can you be this people called to one another and not be around one another? And that's hard because, you know, sometimes you don't like other people. Right? Sometimes people are different than you. Sometimes people don't agree with you. And yet, there's this larger principle of saying, well, you're not bound together because you're all the same. Or you have the same personality. You're bound together because of Christ. You've got to work it out. I mean, that's, Paul wrote most of his letters, and the, basically the, the email subject line is, guys, please, just work it out. All right? Stop it. Stop it. All right? But that's that powerful vision. Holy nation, we are citizens together. And not only that, but one of the things that's unique is that the gospel message is a, is a, is a political message. And I mean that in this way. It's a public proclamation about something. You know, in, in, in the ancient Near East, in, in the Greco-Roman world, Caesar would go around saying he was the son of God. And he would proclaim good news, that he has brought peace. Right? It was a gospel. And so it's very pointed that the apostles are preaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saying there's a, there's a king that is higher than Caesar. There's a peace that no man can bring. And so the empire of Rome which doesn't exist anymore, is subservient to this greater kingdom that God is bringing. That's a powerful call to God's people. 
that he says the, the, when we think about our world, it, it's, it's between what is temporal and what's eternal. And the eternal kingdom is what we fix our eyes upon. The eternal kingdom under the great king, Christ. And that gives us confidence to share the good news. In other words, when you share the gospel, you're not telling people, you're not going around hoping to get enough votes for Jesus so that he will be Lord of all kings and Lord of lords. You're telling people this is simply true, that Christ has ascended, that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And now he's calling people from all nations to be part of his holy nation, holy, set apart, that what marks us out is the way of life that we have, that we live and we, we, we live according to the word of God, that we reflect a Christ-like character, that we bear the image of Christ in how we live. And this will set us apart. We are this holy nation, a people who is going to be distinct from the world, even though we live among the world. And so our holiness is a powerful witness that Peter wants to keep at the center. But holiness, don't just think about holy, you know, floating around, you're glowing, and you never, you don't say swear words, and you always, you know, all this stuff. When he talks about holiness, what's he talking about? This is what I want you to be. Don't envy one another. Don't have malice toward one another. Don't gossip about one another. Don't tear each other apart. Holiness is communal. It's not just about personal purity. It's the pursuit of love and righteousness. He says, I want that to animate the church and understand who, this, who it is. And that, that life of love, what is it? That, that is the very thing that proclaims the message. This is one day what the world will be. That the church itself is a foretaste of the, the fullness of the kingdom of God. The church itself is a foretaste of the righteousness that Christ promises to bring. And that is the commission that we bring. Our very lives are a letter of the gospel to a dying world. Think about the, the, the song we were, we, were, we were singing. You know, Go and tell a dying world of salvation. Right? And it's, not, it's more than just, it's not less than words, but it's, it's more than that. The, the testimony of an entire community is a powerful prophetic witness to what Christ has done in the world. But the best summary of who we are is this. I'm going to take all those together and put it into a package. What marks the church? What does it mean that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation? It means that we are a people for his own possession. I think that's the best way to kind of wrap all this up. That ultimately, the people of God, God has called us together that he might fellowship with us, that he might dwell with us. That's the promise from the very beginning of the garden. He's walking with Adam, and then sin breaks that fellowship. And at the end of the book of Revelation, the very final chapters, it's about God dwelling with man in new heavens and new earth, that we will see his face. And so ultimately, what is church about? I, I, I hope church helps you in your marriage. I hope it helps you uh, with dealing with anxiety. I hope it gives you a sense of community and friendship. But above all those other things, the purpose of the church that we might dwell with God, that we might worship Him and praise Him, to know Him and be known by Him, because that will be what we do for all of eternity. And church is practice for that future reality, that we would be God's people and that we would know Him as our God. That's what we're working for. And what's amazing is that amazing power of fellowshipping with the Lord 
and the ground zero of God's activity in the world happens right here. Happens at 10.30 in the morning in this building with these people around you, with your pastors and your elders and your deacons and your community leaders and your Bible study leaders and your friends that you're praying with. That's where the power of God is manifesting. And Peter wants them to, these, these, these churches, they're not meeting in massive buildings. They don't have conferences. They're not selling any books. They're in little homes. And he's telling them, oh, don't, don't neglect that. Don't, don't look down on that. You are God's people for his own possession. What you are doing is powerful. What you are doing is a foretaste of glory. And we are pilgrims and sojourners in a fallen world. We are following as the Spirit guides us toward our final inheritance. And week after week, we gather as God's people to rehearse that, to remember the mercy of God, the power of God. And then we scatter out as His representatives into the world, telling them, saying that there is room at the table for those who will repent and believe. This is our heritage. This is who we are. This is why we're here today. And the challenge is to live like that's true. Right? But that's why we have the Word of God, to remind us, to clear the noise and remind us, what are we doing here when we gather? What is the church? A people for his own possession. A people meant to proclaim his glorious grace. A people called out of the world, called out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. That you have not left us alone. That you have not left us blind and in the darkness. But in Jesus Christ, you have given us salvation and hope and entrance into your kingdom. And I pray for all of us, for, for, for the church, that there would be a great sense of your mercy that there would be a building up of the love that we have for one another that we would put away all malice and hypocrisy and envy and slander and put on the Lord Jesus Christ put on righteousness that we would be filled with the spirit that we would be holy together as we pursue the kingdom and we do it imperfectly there are many faults in our lives but you are faithful even when we are faithless and you continue to call the church to yourself. So we pray that you would work powerfully in our lives, in our workplaces, in our families, that we might bear the image of Christ and grow in our worship and praise of you. Praise all in Jesus' name. Amen.